You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here in our first week discussing Janice Hallett's The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels, chapters one and two. <laughs> this is a pretty well brand new book that you've brought to us, Herds. Yeah. And uh, boy, howdy, does it seem adventurous in the way that it lays out its text. Look, I mean, if the fact that we're only doing two chapters and give it away, this novel is packed with wild conjecture and WhatsApp messages and emails. The the structure of this novel is that we're looking through old research notes about a book that's just been published, but there's sort of an implication that maybe that book didn't tell the whole story. Yes. Um, and we need to decide whether we're going to release the truth or bury it away. Or That's, that's kind of the vibe here. It's about the nature of truth and whether it should be exposed or not. I didn't bother to go and count how many sections there are in each chapter oh. because there are just a lot. dozens. A lot. Like all of the different dates and types of messages like email, WhatsApp, scripts. Yeah. And it's mainly told from the perspective, sort of, of Amanda Bailey, who is a true crime author, ex-journalist, working on the case of a cult killing from back in 2003. This novel mm. is set in 2021. Yeah. Well, it's it's as you say, it is mostly told from her subjective perspective because we're reading, you know, the messages that she sent to people. This novel has no objective narration. It is 100% quote unquote real historical records about this, you know, cold killing in the setting of the book. Like it's all framed as us trying to pick apart history. Well, yeah, I mean, we also get paired up with uh, Oliver Menzies slash Mingus. The best character. Uh <laughs> Who I love him. is so interesting as a character because Amanda is framed as a really terrible person. <laughs> yes. And Oliver is framed as just like her, but we don't get to see him being terrible so mm. much as it is implied through their similarity that he also is. I think one of my favorite examples is when she sends an email to two different like production companies about two, you yes. know, as a, a movie that was made. Uh, that was focused on the supernatural angle of the cult and another series that was made that was more about the failure of the social care system. Mm -hmm. And so Amanda sends two emails, one to each of these these companies, and to both of them, they're almost identical emails, and they both say, you know, I think that your angle was the better one, 100%. Please tell me everything that I need to know. She's completely two-faced about everything that she does. She is shameless in that way. It's also a like a fun idea, you know, taking this scummy journalist angle, yeah. you know, it's a bit of a trope to play with. Well, I mean, the the other thing that was really interesting about it is that even though Amanda is framed as a pretty terrible person, one of the things that we have introduced about her right at the start of the book, which is clearly going to come back and bite you if you take that perspective <laughs> at face value, is that she has contacts within the social care yes, system. Yes, absolutely. Which means that she probably went through it, which means that a lot of this is probably due to trauma of hers. We're going to learn more about the further we get in. I mean, obviously that's a huge part of the discussion around this novel. And I don't know how much we can get to it immediately, but um, we're going to learn more about their past. Just as we learn about the, the angels, you know, something made them the way that they are. There was a chain of yeah. events that led to this, the outcome that we see at face value, right? I mean, the other interesting thing is, is that all of those characters we get introduced to are mostly introduced through a list of aspirational interviewees that Amanda has put together. Mostly. And 
it's so fascinating having your dramatis personae as like part of the text, but also wrong. Yeah, it's it's unreliable because it is a wish list of of people to interview. It's not a comprehensive list of everyone yeah. in the case. And three of them are dead. Three of them are dead. Also, I will point out- In fact, no, let me correct myself. Three of them die right (laughs) after Amanda reaches out to them or immediately as Amanda reaches out to them. Yeah, she writes them in in the list, the big list of people to interview, and then they're dead before she can even Uh speak to them. I think the other thing that's really interesting about the list of characters that we get is that you mentioned those TV shows, Mm. and there's also a couple of books that were written about it, and we get excerpts from the text of a lot of those. And the question is, obviously, to you as the audience- why are those included if they aren't relevant? It's also like, obviously, thematically, we're doing something similar to Benjamin Stevenson's Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, where the people who, you know, made those stories are, are making them for a reason. And I, I mean, I really enjoyed going through this novel and thinking about the ways in which this event can be, like, it can be exploited, you know, this this horrific moment in in the town's history and Alperton's history can be portrayed, can be misinterpreted and and commercialized as well. Yeah, I, I think the other really interesting thing about it narratively is that like because of the way that it is structured, there's not really the guiding mm. light as to what you are supposed to be looking at. You are your own Watson, and if you cannot spot the things that are relevant in all of this information, it can be kind of overwhelming. Well, that's I mean, that's that's uh, kind of an interesting point because I think this book does a really good job of kind of confusing who the Sherlock and the Watson are because Amanda is our protagonist. Yeah. Oliver corroborates with her. You know, they're both looking for the same pieces of information. And then also the notes of Ellie Cooper, who transcribes all of the um, auditory evidence whenever Amanda goes to an interview and hides her phone in her pocket and records everything, Mm -hmm. despite assuring them that there is no recording device in the, in the area. Yeah, she like brings multiple to some <laughs> yes. and stops the recording on her yeah. dummy one so that people feel safe. It's she's so great. bad. She's great. I love I love how awful she is and how just snake-like her behavior can be. Uh-huh. Um, but then Ellie Cooper will make a little comment like, wow, man, she calls her man. Wow, man, you're, you're really just pulling the wool over this person's eyes. Or is this a bold-faced lie? Or I can hear a pause here. Is that because, like, uh-huh. what kind of look does this man have on his face as he's speaking? We don't get to see body language. We don't get to yeah. see facial expression. We don't even get to see the the places that they're navigating. We have to hear uh, Amanda and, and, and Ellie kind of tell us what's going on which is really fun because all of that is subjective. I, I think it is really fun most of the time, but I think it's also perhaps where some of the book's biggest weaknesses come out. Ooh, like yeah. there's one moment in, I want to say chapter two, where Ellie and Amanda are talking over text and Ellie says, there are some odd discrepancies in what people remember from that night. Have you noticed? Yeah. And it reads so hard as Janice being like, okay, I understand this is getting a bit confusing. Let me just catch you up. I love, I love this book. I loved reading it, but there is a lot of that sort of, let me catch you up territory. Mm-hmm. And the, the trouble is, right, is that in theory, it would make sense because they're research notes. They would be thorough and redundant Absolutely. so that you could cross check the redundancy. Like all the different types of messages in the book sort of overlap with each other and lead from one to the next. It has a good sense of momentum there, but it feels like a lot of information. <laughs> I understand why Janice felt the need to put in these catch-up sessions with Ellie. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think the thing is, is that 
all of these things are, are really going to depend on the pace at which you read the book. Mm. Like my inclination hurts, and I don't know how you feel about this, is actually that we take a week to do something different between part one and part two of Alperton mm. to try and encourage people to kind of take the read slowly because I, I certainly feel like that could be overwhelming yeah. uh, if you if you were to like just storm through the book. I agree with that. I wouldn't I wouldn't mind giving us a little a little bit more time, especially for yourself, Flex, obviously. I know how slow you read. Uh, I feel like maybe you need an extra couple of days, you know. you. Well, <laughs> we also have the perfect guest. I mean, speaking of the Antichrist and of complex narrative structures, you recently spoke uh, mm. about Ben Hobson's The Death of John oh Lacey. Goodness. Maybe we should get him on the show. I, I would love to do that. I need to talk to him about the farting. It is the most important thing to me <laughs> in the world. You have no idea. Well, uh... <laughs> Speaking of herds, Speaking of, yeah, uh, Ben Hobson's on the show in just a minute. Oh and wow! Next week we'll have a full, uh, full, much longer discussion with Ben Hobson to kind of close that gap. I love that. But before we before we throw over to Ben Hobson, there was one other thing that I really wanted to address here, and mm. I think that that is that I really love how committed this story is to leaving a thread hanging. Sure, like. There's this thread that I'm thinking of with Clive Badham, 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 Clive. Yeah, yeah, who has written a like spec script? Or no, he claims to have written a spec script. Mm. And here's a really fun trick that I want to point out. Heard. Oh, Clive says he doesn't want to send the spec script to Amanda because he's worried that she will steal it, change his name. And the joke is in the moment, of course, that Amanda does exactly that. She steals the title of his spec That's all she has, yeah. But mm-hmm. it is obviously leaving the thread hanging that Clive also stole this script. And I don't know when that or how that is going to be relevant. Is- but I love how many times the novel sets stuff like that up. Yeah, well, it's like how the, the baby's shadow hangs over this entire novel. Like, we, we've barely even talked about the baby, uh, mm-hmm. but it is- the centerpiece, the piece, la resistance of this entire thing. Supposedly you know? the Antichrist. Supposedly the Antichrist. And everyone wants to find it all of a sudden because it's going to turn 18 and that's when the Antichrist powers are the strongest. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to need you, Flex, in our third part to tell me how you plan to defeat the Antichrist. That is your task today. Good luck. Oh, I believe in exciting. You. All righty. <laughs> You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. We'll be back with a baby puzzle in a little bit, but before that, Ben Hobson on the death of John Lacey. Stick around, you're on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are humbled today to be joined by Ben Hobson. He's an English and music teacher, author of To Become a Whale, Snake Island, host of Words and Nerds spin-off Burgers, Beer and Books, and most recently, the author of The Death of John Lacey, an Aussie historical crime fiction story set in the wild outback. Ben, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. I am extremely pleased to be here. Um, currently on the road. Uh, so for people listening, I am in a little motel room in Casino, which is the beef capital of Australia. And it's very uh, exciting. I'm very excited. I'm this is the second day of the tour, and can I say to you guys, I'm already feeling a little lonely. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to, I'm used to having my pets and my my children and my wife and things like that, so it's always very noisy. So just to have quiet, it's very strange. My my mind doesn't know what to do with it anymore. Yeah, it does. You you do get used to those habits, I suppose. I wanted to get into 
the story here because the novel is a bit of a love letter to the Western genre with an Aussie mm. Outback flavor. What inspired you to marry the inevitability of the gunshot felt at the beginning of the story with the inescapable brutality of our own nation's past? Jeez, what a big question right from the top. Normally there's some getting to know you sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> we, we can't buy you dinner. I'm sorry. No, we yeah, can't. No, we got to skip yeah, all that. All <laughs> well, beef, you know, beef capital. I was expecting some steak. Um, <laughs> look, it, it was a very, very slow evolution. I'm not a person who I think sets out to write something and then that thing is the thing I produce at the end of it. It was just very slowly sort of investigating all these things. One of the biggest jumping off points um, in the Western genre for me was probably my dad. Uh, he used to give me Louis L'Amour books. Um, if you're very familiar with Westerns, Louis L'Amour is kind of the, he's a very popular Western author and he just, maybe he's a bit schlocky. I love Louis L'Amour, but the main thing that got me into writing um, The Death of John Lacey was John Lacey himself, who was really inspired by um, Daniel Plainview from the movie There Will Be Blood which is probably my favorite film of all time, which is no small say. And I wanted to write about a person who was okay with being morally corrupt. All the characters I've ever written are real extensions of me um, in that, you know, I try to imagine what it would be like to make mistakes and to sort of have be backed into a, a corner. I like that sort of uncomfortable feeling of what would I do in this situation and not really knowing the right way forward. I like characters like that. So the first part of the book was the part written sort of centered around him and his, you know, his rising, his conquest of um, the prospecting in Ballarat. So I would say he's the main jumping off point. But then what I found was he was just such an awful person. I wanted some some good people to sort of stand up in opposition to him, which is, you know, I guess reckoning with that part of our history, right? Like he was sort of what represented the most awful parts of Australian history. Um, and I hope there were some good people who sort of stand up against that sort of history, yeah. I guess I, I wanted to ask about uh, about kind of the structure of your writing. Mm. Um, you've made some particularly bold choices here. The way that you you title the acts of your story in particular, mm-hmm. they're reminiscent of some of my favorite Western movies, like uh, 310 to Yuma or The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, where the mm. titles kind of, they kind of give away what's going to happen by the end of the story, but are not- yeah. Uh, descriptive of what the the act will be about. Um, my favorite example of this is the wide and destructive path of Gilbert Delaney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the first couple of chapters is him just like, I'm just a guy with my family having a, having a great time and being a lovely human being. You don't know how that's going to connect with the end. Yeah. Um, could, could you tell me how you built up the confidence to spoil the ending of your book <laughs> on the title cover? The original title was just Lacey. It was just going to be big lacy written over the front of it. But in discussions with my agent, who is long-suffering, but I never get a title past her. So every single book I've written, I've said, oh, this is the title. And I've always wanted to get one by her. But I, was, I thought this one, lacy, like it's punchy. It's got, you know, big letters. It could be really cool. Book about lingerie. That is yeah. exactly <laughs> what she said. She said it sounds like it's going to be a romance, period romance sort of thing, maybe like doilies or something like that. So then I took, because the first chapter was already called The Death of John Lacey, so I took that and gave that away right up front. But then starting with his death, uh, I guess it was a little bit of my way of saying it's a, he does die, you know, this, this horrible part of our history. He is dead at the beginning. Um, I certainly didn't want it to be about, I guess, will he or won't he. I wanted it to be a kind of inevitability 
And then my favorite type of stories to to watch on TV or to read, I always like trying to put together the puzzle of how we got there. But when I was writing it, I had no idea what the structure would be. I I toyed once with shifting timelines. I don't know whether you've seen the movie Dunkirk. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And there's like there's one timeline that's sort of over over weeks, and then there's one that's over days, there's one's over hours. So I was trying to, it just was very confusing. So I ended up just presenting it in the most straightforward manner, which is just in order, mostly in order of um, the timeline. Then starting with um, John Lacey's death and you wondering what had gone on to get him into that uh, circumstance. Yeah, I guess like one of the things that I talk about often with thrillers is like the flavor of the page turner. What is that element that gets you turning the page? And I think that there's there's kind of two mm. in this book. There's one is the sort of destructive inevitability that those chapter titles give you where you're like, okay, Gilbert Delaney, if you, if you insist as you get further and further towards the destructive <laughs> path. But the other one is the sort of pacing that's lent by your choice to omit quotations for speech mm. and hardly any time spent on reminding the re- reader who's speaking. Mm-hmm. I guess, talk to me a bit about that choice because it reminded me a lot of something that you'd see in metafiction where you have like multiple narrators like trading voices. Mm. That's really interesting. Um Can I say that it never struck me as I chose to do that very early on into writing this because it's just a style, honestly, that I really love. Um, Cormac McCarthy does it. um, uh, Richard Flanagan does it. Tim Winton does it. You know, there are these authors who I really admire. Uh, Rowan Wilson does it. Writing to me is always about trying to strip back as much fluff as possible to get to the core of the story. And to me, it just feels like it's more, it's more etched in stone, like it feels ancient somehow. Um, and it was also interesting too, I had the read of the Geraldry letter, which was what Ned Kelly wrote as like a sort of a treatise on the government and everything. Um, it was like a six-page letter he'd, he'd written. But in there, his punctuation was really lacking as well. Like he wasn't as maybe educated as, uh, you know, people in those times with all the journals I'd read as well. There is a kind of lack of that stuff. So I kind of wanted to emulate that. But yeah, it's all about stripping back. It's about stripping back and making it try to be as blunt, I guess, as possible. Because when I read that sort of stuff, it just feels blunt to me. It's not trying to be pretty. It's just quite uh, raw, maybe would be the word. We'll have more of Ben Hobson talking the death of John Lacey next week on the show, because there's a bunch of tasty, quiet parallels between the death of John Lacey and the mysterious case of the Alperton Angels. So make sure you're listening in for that. Thank you to ABC Radio National and Alan and Unwin for providing us with copies of the death of John Lacey and to Ben for his time. We'll be back with more of the Alpton Angels in just a second. Stick around. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are discussing Janice Hallett's The Mysterious Case of the Alpton Angels, chapters one and two. Now, Herds. Mm, Flex, what are you up to? I am (laughs) in with quite the challenge here because... (laughs) You have a lot to solve. There are so many open ends yeah. in this book. I Can I tell you, before we go any further, that I've only read like one proper article review of this novel. Uh-huh. And the biggest thing that they had to say was like, I didn't even know what I was supposed to be solving until the book was nearly over. 
I I think we can probably do better than that. Oh. Mostly because Oof. there's just so many things that you could possibly focus on. I'm just going to throw everything at you. That That is the plan. Hell yeah. I mean, listen, Herds, professional advice from you. Do you think I take my quintuple or nothing bet on my first novel no, of the year? No, that's no, you, you can't, can't do it. You can't upstage you this early. Flags, come on. Leave some tension for the audience. Okay, I'll leave some tension for the audience, <laughs> but I want to let you know I reckon that whoever wrote that review is a coward. Oh, wow. Okay. I guess we have better have some beef uh, listen, with them. Not really. Listen, I understand that some <laughs> books are, are, are more more work than they're worth for some readers, and maybe that's where the Alpton Angels will fall for some people. But for me, this is perfect. Let's let's be very clear. Um, our, our task today is basically to figure everything out. Like that is the best way to put Just it. Just everything, like, you know? Um, Amanda is trying to figure out uh, what what happened on the night of the massacre, why people in her present tense are dying. Yep. That would be Mark Dunning, Gray Graham, and, and Jonathan Childs, all these uh-huh. current time people who are dying to mysterious causes. Yep. And also I need you to play a game of peekaboo where you put your hands over your eyes and you go- Where's the baby? Oh, no, but Ben, Where's I don't have baby? object permanence yet. Well, then you'll fail. You'll never find the oh, baby. crap. But yeah, so you need to find the baby. Tell me what happened that night. What's happening? Like, why are people dying now? Because, you know, it might just be coincidence, but who knows? Also, is the Antichrist real and why? There are, there are two big threads in my mind here. And one of them mm. makes a lot of sense, but I must confess bores me slightly. So how crazy is Oliver? <laughs> that's my fault. And that's the second thread. <laughs> Yes. Tell me about Oliver. Because Oliver, the way that it's set up (laughs) is that I thought that he was going to turn out to be a member of the Angels cult the entire time. Mm. But the further we get in, the more it seems like he is being made an Angels member the entire time. Sure. Okay. Both of those are kind of enticing, Mm. but I I do have some concerns because I think it's a really fun idea that the reason all of these other characters are dying is because- Oliver perhaps is Jonah, one of the survivors of this the thing. We go out and meet yeah. a Jonah at an abbey, we but do. it's entirely possible that Oliver set that up as a cover story for himself so that he could continue murdering all these other people. Yeah, like they're there for several hours, but they only meet uh, Jonah for like, quote unquote Jonah, for like five minutes. It's yeah, very he cagey. says close to nothing. Yeah. He says very low. He says, I like living in this monastery. Please leave me alone, kind people. But And that's it. The thing that I'm concerned about is that there are so many mystery flags with Oliver that make me think that all of his weird cult stuff is a prank. What do you mean? What do you mean by a prank? Why, for example, does Janice Hallett introduce to us that he cannot handle caffeine? Don't know. Because he describes, he describes- Doesn't like burning the midnight oil. That he gets this like kind of overwhelming sensation when he feels the the the, the, the magic of the angels yeah, nearby. Yeah, because of the Antichrist. Goes, it's because of God. You don't, you blasphemous heathen. You don't understand real religion. Because they, they keep going for, going out for coffee. Is Amanda ordering him the wrong drink? I guess my question is to what end then if she's like spiking Well, because they keep playing pra- practical jokes on each other. That's why it's I mean, boring. It's true. It's true. That is, that is a it true thing. It makes sense, but I don't want it to. 
And the other thing on that same thread, right, is that all of these people are dying, and it could be that Oliver is a cult member, but we also know that Oliver keeps bringing up this ex-Special Forces person who keeps calling him at ungodly hours of the morning. Mm. And when you introduce the Special Forces in a murder mystery novel, Ben, that's Chekhov's gun. I, You know what? I don't know what to say to that. I think that there, there might just be a random Special Forces guy hanging out who just happens to be calling him at... 4.44 every morning. The, the the fun answer that I'm going to go with this week and I'll present two different theories game is that Oliver and Gabriel uh, have been twins. putting together a long oh, con okay. while he's in prison. That's why like Gabriel allows Oliver into his prison while rejecting Amanda. Mm. There's, there's so much fun that could come out of the idea that they've been coordinating this nonsense while Gabriel's been in prison and it's all this big, enormous long con that's going to end up getting Amanda killed because Amanda will obviously die before the end of her book. That's why we have her records all in a box. This sounds like a, a ridiculous religious-themed spy novel. It, it is a sort of like tacky spy fiction thing, as you're saying. Mm. It doesn't really make much sense for a murder mystery novel. So I guess the question is, is like, what else were they up to that is more of a mystery thing? What is the longer con that Gabriel is trying to pull here? Mm. Like, it, it cannot be romance because we don't really have a love interest character set up what if this whole book is just a big prank what about that that'd be nice that would be nice you know that'd be that would be a pleasant ending that would be the nicest possible ending janice i need you to write a new ending (laughs) option two option two is that they're actually deluded in which case it like doesn't really hold much narrative weight okay and option three in my mind is money but where's the money come from where what is the money what is the money uh it's a great question surely the baby is the thing that is making the exchange of money monetary in this story but like who's buying a baby (laughs) Why do you think someone's buying a baby? They have the baby what to else, sacrifice it to Jesus. What, what else is the sacrifice about? They got to kill it for God. But we've just, like, that can't be, that's just so the wrong genre. Let's say that they were going to sell a baby, which is far out there and ridiculous. Oliver and Gabriel have kept this cult thing going on. Yeah. Why haven't they snatched another baby? That's the thing I I don't really understand because Oliver's still looking for the baby who would be 18 by now. Mm. Who aged 18 as someone who was going to be sold as a baby is still valuable enough to buy (laughs) as an adult to bother chasing and go through all of this trouble? It's a great question. And a a question that I hope you can solve. It just it just doesn't make sense. Everything makes sense. It doesn't make and here's the thing, Ben, is as I said, this is the theory I have to go with this week. <laughs> so I'm going to say, I'm going to say that it is a clone of Queen Elizabeth II. May she rest in peace. That's a great one. I, why? Why a clone of Queen Elizabeth II? Please explain. Because who else is that valuable? <laughs> who else? Who else is worth hanging out in prison for 18 oh years God. for? That's like, a great question. I mean, look, the Antichrist, it is said, will make their way to the upper echelons of society. Exactly. Just like the clone of Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> may she rest in peace. But <laughs> the thing is, is even though I'm going to lock that theory in this week for the game here on Death of the Reader, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and as interesting as it is, unfortunately, I think a special forces operation coordinated by the man who says... Oh my god, can I pull it up? Let me Please do. Amanda Bailey do. says to Don Makepeace, the police officer who's been her contact this entire time, 
what happened to the baby? <laughs> and Don Makepeace responds, and I quote, Ah, that reminds me, I have a favor to ask. My son Connor is considering journalism as a career. I swear to God, Don Makepeace, if Connor is the baby, you're fired. <laughs> you're evicted from this story. <laughs> like, <laughs> it has to be Ellie. That's who I want it to be. I want it to be that Ellie gets to the end of this book. She's been transcribing this entire thing and realizes that it's her. But Don Makepeace is out after, he's after me. I, can I tell you, this is a war between you and, and Janice Hallett. I, I feel perfectly safe. I feel like you're going straight for the author today. This is wild. But it's it's like <laughs> Ellie Ellie makes so much sense because there's going to be all of the irony of her slowly figuring out that it's her because she keeps posing theories. She's like the narrator character. She is the odd one out oh, in dude. the story. All, look, all I'm going to say about any of, any of the theories, first off, it's definitely the Antichrist and he's wrong, but also um, <laughs> at, <laughs> at this point in the story, I 100% hoped and believed that it, that the Antichrist was going to turn out to be Ellie Cooper. Yeah. And I think that we will have a fun time talking about her role in this story. I'm, yeah, this is terrifying. Terrifying it watching is, you it is terrifying. fight like, this book. I am really genuinely having a fantastic time with this book. Good. And I think if Janice Halley gets to the end and it is Connor, I, I have full faith that she is going to make me compelled as to the fact that it is Connor. But- the structure of this novel is so engagingly and intentionally obtuse that I'm like sitting here screaming. And, <laughs> I mean, you've heard. I me. can hear you. I'm sitting right next to you. I can hear you screaming. Next week on the show, we're going to continue that discussion we've heard a bit of with Ben Hobson about the death of John Lacey. And then the following week, Herds, what chapters will we be covering? We're going to be reading chapters three to five. Uh, I hope you have a good time with it and that you don't freak out at any major revelations that you would never have seen coming. It's going to be a wonderful yeah. experience. So look forward to that. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. Flex and Herds joining you for another enjoyable mystery evening or whatever time you may be listening on podcast. We'll catch you with Ben Hobson next week and then more Alperton Angels the week after. We're out of here.